Welcome to the Vicious Circle. Sid, we're on episode three. Man, this is going by really good. Isn't this great? This is great. And uh, I know I've followed your history. I'm learning so much more in this than I ever knew. Like the last episode, I'm still baffled that you were taught under kayfabe. That, that is crazy. But now we're going to jump right into it. You, you got training and you... Uh, I'm so sorry, I drew a blank. But you got your training and then Lawler got a hold of you. Right. This is what we were talking about before, is like who technically discovered you. Right. Well, this is the thing is, is uh, um, we talked a little bit about what it was. It was I'm, I was told that it was Terry Funk that was supposed to come into Memphis and do like a three-week run. And they do that with different people. Like what it was, say, Saturday morning t- TV was taped for Monday Night Coliseum. Then those tapes were sent to Nashville and Louisville and Evansville, and they were a week behind. So, uh, I mean, they were pre-taped, you know what I mean? So then the, the show you did in Memphis, you know, the, the week later, uh, you would do it in Evansville. And, you know, the week before that, you'd be doing the one before that. So everything was a week behind. So when they brought someone in for the Coliseum, if they could work out a deal with someone like, like Austin Isle or Terry Funk or Bruiser Brody, they'd try to get them to do the major shows, Memphis, Nashville, Louisville and Evansville, and sometimes they'd work out what I got stuck on or got, you know, got lucky and got on was about a three-week deal where I did all the main towns for like, you know, three weeks. And what it was is someone canceled or didn't show, from my understanding, so they called me. And what it was is uh, I was at a softball game, and Lawler pulled me to the side and said, hey, man, we got something. Would you be interested? And actually called me to his house, and he gave me which. I think he made himself for a guy named, um, oh, shit, I'll think of a second. He was a, he did the Lord Humongous character in Memphis. He was a football coach. Mike Sharp was his name. All right, so um, either he didn't want to do it or something, so he brought me to his house. He gave it to me. It was terrible. And when I went to Continental, I actually made my own, but that's how I got started right there. Now, I'd say by good reason they didn't hire me full time. One day I wasn't brought in for, for the full-time deal. I was brought in for someone who didn't show up. Then that's when I got my full-time gig down at Continental. But really who, if you had to point to one name that say that was really responsible for my career would be Eddie Gilbert. Uh, reason being is this. When Eddie came down and he took over Continental, you know, this is where we got a chance to meet. And uh, he really, you know, was nice to me and treated me well and stuff like that. And then Things got bad. Continental, I ended up coming back to Memphis. Eddie got fired. So then uh, I go to Memphis, and um, Eddie goes from Continental. Actually, he becomes booker for WCW, the very beginning stages of it. So um, I didn't know this, but a guy named Ken Wayne, who's in jail right now, he goes to the Coliseum when WCW's doing a taping, 
and says, uh, hey, man, I'm trying to get a job. He goes, man, he goes, uh, I don't have a job for you, Ken. He goes, but I'm trying to get in touch with Sid because I didn't have a phone at the time. He goes, man, I don't know how to get in touch with him. So what Ken does, Ken goes stooges me off to Lawler and him say, hey, man, Sid's fixing leads and go to WCW, which I knew nothing about. <laughs> so the little bit of guarantee I had there, like was $50 a night or something, they took away from me. So when I went to get my check, it was like half there. And they, I went, what happened? He goes, well, we just can't afford that whatever that guaranteed that we were, you know, talking about. And I said, well, man, I, I, I'm not going to – and I just got a deal with Japan where they wanted me working somewhere where they could bring their photographers, photographers in to take pictures because they do it every week. And uh, I was sort of caught in the middle right there, you know, man, either tell Japan to kiss my ass, worry about their own photos, I'm going to keep my job. So I just said, you know, guys, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go home. So I, here it is. I think I'm jobless, you know. And uh, I go by my father-in-law's car lot, and he goes, man, some guy about Eddie Gilbert's been calling crazy, trying to get in touch with you. So I call him. I said, Eddie, Sid. He goes, hey, Sid, it's Eddie. He says, man, I'm, uh, I'm booking WCW. He goes, would you like a tryout? I went, hell yeah. And the rest is history. Now, guys, what Eddie did differently, Eddie was really smart, one of the smartest, one of the five smartest guys I, I think I ever met in the business. And he was smart like this, too. Like, he knew I was young. He knew the things I was lacking. So he said, okay, we, go, we knew he was going to have a big singles career. So he brought in Danny Spivey and, and, and came up with the, uh, the tag team called the Skyscrapers. And really, Danny's job was to teach me how to get heat or what that meant or how to get – I didn't even have a, a credit card at the time. It was get me back and forth to the shows and show me how to get a rental car and how to check, you know, make reservations and all that kind of stuff. But not just that, how to really get over it. Meaning, like, when we did TVs or shows and stuff like that, you know, he always gave me the green light. And things like this, for instance, we were working house shows, me and Danny, against the Steiners were, were sort of difficult to work with. You know, they were they thought this stuff was real too much. And they, I think their reputation says that they thought too much of themselves sometimes. So they weren't always cooperative. So Eddie would come up and say, Sid, you know that spot you do at TV where you take a guy and press him, throw him right over the top rope from the floor? I go, yeah. He goes, I want you to do that Rick and Scott tonight. <laughs> Okay. Now you can't. They can't say no to the boss. You know what I mean. So he he would go to the road warriors. Same thing. Sid, I want you to take uh, one of these road warriors and just spin them like a top tonight. Okay. Okay, Eddie. That's what I'll do. So that's that's what it takes to get over. Sometimes it takes the boss to get you over. Meaning, tell this guy this is what's going to happen because this guy's going to get over, and it did. It really did. And he's got to direct it because it's not about ego. It's about story. It's about, it's about stories. Yeah. It really is, guys. And it's like. And then, you know, I, I, I know this to be true, that I'm one of those very few people, you know, handful of people that really got over like I did. And to do that, you had to have that, you know, to help you out a little bit. Because if it had been just left up to me, I wasn't going to impose and pose my will on something that's fake. You know, I'm not going to force these guys to do this. But when the boss says, this is what we want, then it gave me the green light. So everything, 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 Thing after that, as soon as I got in the match, I go, "Hey man, I'm gonna press slam you over the top row to the floor." You know, it's a DQ. I don't care if I get DQ. I'm doing it anyway. Eddie <laughs> said to you know, so I just got over, man. So it was Eddie really that yeah. that put you in that position. Yeah, Eddie, and then you know this started, and then I, that, but that was the main person that you know hand actually held my hand and walked me to success. And you can't beat that. No. Okay, well, we're going to step back just before Lawler then. How long were you training? I had trained for about a year under Tojo before I broke my foot. 
and I'd probably been doing these little independent places like Malden for about three, four, or five months when I got that little gig with Lawler, and then say another month so goes by, and then I I get the break with Continental full time. How long into that? Now this is a new question. How long into that before you actually learned? Like when they broke kayfabe for you? You know, this is the thing is when they finally broke kayfabe. You know, I didn't get broken down or it didn't get broken to me because I, I sort of got kicked out of wrestling school because I had the broken foot. So I sort of learned that on my own going to the shows. So that's how you learn it. Now, kayfabe was something that they did everywhere, meaning we talked about before to where if you were stopped somewhere that you were, if you were healed, you still had to come across like a hill. Now, as Lord Humongous wearing a hood, I had to do the opposite. I had to deny being a wrestler. No, that's not me and stuff like that. But still... Right in that era is when WWF is breaking kayfabe. They're getting rid of it. And one of the reasons was because they were paying these huge amounts of money to athletic commissions. And they were paying it because athletic commissions are usually for boxing or something like that. So Vince says, hey, this is fake. I don't need this athletic commission. Well, the athletic commission still stayed around. But that's when they started breaking it. And so I wasn't in business but about a year for it was okay to – Ride with your enemy. And I started doing it. Actually, the very first, uh, one of the first guys I rode against, I worked with, I uh, rode with that I worked against was Yokozuna. And they called him the Samoan uh, warrior. He wasn't uh, as big as he was at Yokozuna. But he, he was, uh, you know, from the Pensacola, Florida area where a lot of the Samoan families are from. And so that was part, you know, we ran Pensacola, Panama City, maybe once every few months. And so he came in with his uncle Sika, which was a, Man, that was like royalty. I got to work with Sika on uh, a couple of strap matches. He beat, he shed at me. I didn't know how to sell. I learned real quick after. <laughs> on the end. Think about it, when you get strapped, man, you can't sell that. It hurts. And he didn't understand I couldn't sell. It was hurting too bad. But, again, um, me and Roddy rode together all the time, you know, as you know, worked against each other. But still, that was with, lucky during that kayfabe. He didn't have a car and. I need someone to help pay gas, you know, so that worked out good. This is a little off of here, too, but they actually, it seems like kayfabe was broken twice because there was that time with the commission and, and they, say, they called it out, but it's like the public didn't buy into it at that point. And it wasn't until recent, well, I say recent, like 03 or 04, yeah. the novels started coming out, the books started coming out, that kayfabe just was blown open again. Right. You know, the thing is, is um, I don't think people wanted to believe it wasn't real. At first, you know, I because agree. there were people I would, you know, I swear I, I did this as a joke and it worked every time. You know, they always go, you know, Sid, rationalism is fake. And I go, yeah, you're right. But now that one time, that one time down Louisville, when I saw you fight old Bob, no, that was fake too. No, God damn it, I said it. I, one time I saw it and it was real. I said, no, it, it can't be real one time. It's it's fake all the time. No shit, I saw it. And so that's what I'm saying. You they can fight refer- for they it. They fight for it. And it's funny, uh, I had a sister, um, her name, I won't even say her name, but I was uh, wrestling in Memphis and I was a bad guy in North Hill. And somebody said, man, who in the hell's got a, this is before anybody had t-shirts, somebody's got a Sid Vicious shirt on there screaming for you, it was my sister. And I was like, this isn't real, go home. <laughs> it was just, ah. She actually got in a fight with a guy does a, uh, a Facebook fa- page called uh, Psycho Sid Promotions. His name's Eric. And she's arguing with him, 
thinking she's arguing with me. <laughs> and I told Margo, I said, Margo, you, I don't do Facebook. I don't, that's not me. And she, I'd get a text on my phone. Yeah, fuck you, man. I was like, <laughs> I was, what are you doing? I can't, I just said, that's not me, you know? Oh my God, that's hilarious. Yeah. And see, I always wondered about that too. Um, because we just launched the Facebook page for, you know, viciouscirclepod.com. Sure. There is that psycho sit. And I thought, does he have that? Because our conversations, it's like, no, you, you don't. You stay away from that. Right. So I can imagine people being a little If you can confuse your sister. Right. <laughs> well, you know, and what I've tried to do and what we're going to continue to do is there's people out there, imposters, like it's got some, got some Sid Vicious got a Twitter account. I actually had that shut down once or twice and they come right back with it. But um, I don't do Twitter. I, I'm eventually going to do Twitter because <clears throat> a lot of things I like to do, I like to, you know, I like to comment on things like on ESPN. I'm pretty good about picking sports stuff out and stuff like that. So I, I want to get to that and maybe Instagram, but I'm going to tackle this podcast stuff first. And once I get that under my wing and feeling pretty safe, I'm going to try some other things. Excellent. Well, that's going to be great to see you out there. So, you were you were busy training. You trained for about a year. Now, was there any other people that you trained with that you still work with, or that followed you, or you followed? You're talking about re- other wrestlers. Yeah, yeah. There was a couple of guys that worked out with me uh, on a pretty regular basis. Bob Holly was one. Um, um, Billy and Bart Gunn. Bart was a strong guy, but he working out was just not his thing. He'd work out with us, but he wasn't into it. Billy Gunn was a he was a phenomenal athlete, really a lot of fun to work out with. Carl Ouellette, um, one of the Quebecers at one time, uh, I think he's wrestling on a CP, CPO or something like that. Really, uh, we trained a whole lot together. <clears throat> and on the road, too, I used to try to drive those guys in the ground. And I, uh, Of course, this is when we're all having to try to save money. Um, so we're all rooming together and riding together. And we were actually working out twice a day and all this stuff and trying to find a time to run and stuff. So we were in Montreal. And um, that's where Carl lives. So we'd already worked out twice, me and Billy have. We go back to our room, and um, we're laying down. I take my shoes off, and he takes his shoes off, and we lay down. And for one minute, then I get right back up and put my shoes on. He goes, what do you fix to do, man? I went, I fix to go power walk. <laughs> <laughs> There's snow on the ground out there. So I go out there, and just to get him out of bed, we get out there and start power walking for like an hour. We can't even walk the next day after that. <laughs> But uh, he'll remember that story. But, no, I love working out with Billy and Bart. Uh, again, Bart was just not, you know, workout. You know, he just that wasn't his deal. But me and Bob Holly had some great workouts, and me and Carl Willett had some really good workouts as well. So I, doing this now, I, mean, I, I thought it was a phone call, but you just said it was at a baseball match. Lawler came up to you and said, we need you. And you said, you know, you weren't ready. But what's it like getting that? I, I'm going to call it the call. What's it like getting that call? Well, like when I got the call from Eddie, you know, it was just a trial, but man, that chance, man, that was uh, that was the deal, you know. And I never forget flying in and getting that hotel and get to center stage and got to do my deal, you know, have a get over match, not go out there and put someone over, man. Getting that call, that was like, dude, that was it's hard to describe. It, it was like winning the lottery, you know. Everything that, you know, I did, guys, and I, I never. Uh, you know, sell myself short. When I got in this business, you know, again, I wasn't a fan. And I, I set out to be, I told myself, I'm going to be the top five of, in this business before I get out. Now, my goal is to be the top. 
you know, and I was, I think, the top at several times in my career, so I passed the top five for sure. But uh, I never got into it to be come up short of what I've done. Yeah, there was no second. No. Yeah. No. Well, when you, uh, this is back to the Lawler call. What kind of prep did you do to get ready for being Lord Humongous? Like you now, said, I'm it's, a, it's, not to cut you off. Funny mm-hmm. about Lord Humongous was is now, I'm a pretty big guy at that time, not as big as I got later on, but i never forget the night we're going to the ring, me and Austin Idol, uh, and he said, he's telling me to flex, and I couldn't. I was so nervous I couldn't get my body to flex. And I don't know if it was that or I was flexing for so long I couldn't flex anymore, but it was nerve-wracking, dude. Maybe you're already tense and that yeah, your was, muscles yeah, were exactly. already. I couldn't move, man. So did they, anybody give you any advice for that night? You know what? Not really. Um, not like you think you would get um, this again. Lawler was, has always been like this. He won't even give you the finish again until you get in the ring. And, and uh, I, I, working with someone like that makes makes it comfortable for me if other people are like that. Now, if you're not used to that, that really makes you uncomfortable. So I got to be taught how to be comfortable in really uncomfortable situations. So I was already used to that. And so that's something I enjoyed doing to other people. Like, I never forget, I can't, I can't believe really, I was talking to Scott Hall and he wanted to get down every little spot on the match. I said, Scott, I'll just, we'll just call it out there. He goes, Man, this ain't Memphis said. This is a <laughs> WWF. Win. I said, no, I've been at WWF before. We can still call it, you know. <laughs> no, man, i got to have it down, you know. But I, I think it's a little fun to chance it like that sometimes. You don't want to do that on TV. Or you don't want to do it maybe the first time you work with someone or something like that. But if you've worked with someone and it's just a, another night, go out there and have some fun. And see, I don't know about TV, but it's always good to read the crowd. Right. You know, if you're getting over on something, right. you kind of ride it a little. Right. And I'll tell you um, – who was great at that, one of the best workers of all time for his mental and physical ability was Bam Bam Bigelow, and he knew when to change things. Now, I'll tell you now, some people like Vader, who I really enjoyed working with, he was a workhorse, but he didn't like changing things. Like, for instance, we had this match down, and he's put me over like a million bucks. He reminded me, too. He said, that make you like a million bucks? I said, yeah, Leon, you do. He told me that every night. So um, we get to this spot, and I just – it really wasn't a great spot, but I thought of doing it. He's uh, getting his heat on me, so I made a little bit of a comeback. I said, I'm going to kick you in the gut, bend over, I'm going to sunset flip you, and then you just squat down on me and just, you know, just regain your heat. So we did it. And so uh, just a little pop, you know, some of that big coming down on your head, you know. Uh, I thought he might like it, you know, being in the fetal position. I was kidding. <laughs> the north-south position. Probably the only time he was in that position. Just joking. Uh, I love Leon. So we get back to the back, and he goes, Sid, what was that? I said, what, what was that? What was what? That spot. Oh, I, I just thought I'd, uh, you know, do something different. He goes, man, let me ask you something. I said, what, Leon? He goes, do I work my ass off, make you like a million bucks every night? I said, yeah, you, you do. He goes, don't do that again. <laughs> I said, okay, man. I won't do that again, though, because anybody worked that hard – this is the thing is, when you worked as hard as he did, he, he deserved the right to call what happened. Because in our business, the heel does call that. And as a heel, I wanted that responsibility or that luxury to make either make it work or not work. So he was making it work, dude. So I was going to give him that total respect. I said, you've got that right. I won't call that spot no more. <laughs> At least not ahead of time. No, yeah, right. Oh, man. So now, 
I know you've you spoke to me before, and you said sometimes you were walking out to the ring, and you could have four people that you know in the audience. You wouldn't even see them because right. you're focused. What do you remember of that very first match? Man, honestly, nothing. I remember just that. Uh, of course, the Memphis um, had way it set up was that that really that one light the way it really is. I like it. Just the one light over the ring, and everything was dark. It was almost like wearing that hockey mask. I really couldn't see anything. It was a little weird, you know. So. But it was just, I tell you, um, one of the few matches, I couldn't tell you one spot that happened in it. I really, I don't even remember how the match went, what the finish was. I was just that petrified, you know. Did you guys, who won that match? I think I, I'm pretty sure they beat me. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> you were the guy that Yeah, I was day. the guy that day, yeah. So now, how did that help with your career? Like, because um, you said you weren't in the position to be ready. Did You did the three weeks. Did you decide to go back to training, or did you just ride it from that? No, you just you don't go back to training. You just try to find you some more temporary gigs. Do you find a full time one? That's what I did. Uh, you know, I just kept doing the independent stuff, and then finally got pulled in. But Bob Polk was one of the owners uh, in Continental. Him and Ron Fuller owned a, also a hockey team together. And what happened once I got there? Then it's, the territory sort of split. Ron and Bob took the north end. Then the guy named David Woods that came in bought the south end of Continental, and that's who I worked for. And on occasion, I'd go up to the north and do some shots for Ron and, and Bob, just on occasions. Okay. Excellent. Well, I think we're at the end of this one, too, Sid. Like, these are flying by. This is awesome. Dude. Yes. Let's get to our question. Okay. My time is yours. And for our question today, we have Pete Marsh back again from Blenheim, Ontario, Canada. Pete, what have you got for us? Hey, Rob. Hey, Sid. Hey, Pete. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, my question is, uh, I had read that your, your son, Gunner, had actually uh, performed with one of your old gimmicks, uh, Lord Humongous. Is that, is that true? Yeah, what happened was, um, I, one of the hobbies I have is I like producing film. So after the movie The Wrestler came out, I decided to do something totally opposite and and go to a small town just right north of us here in Osceola where it's there's no cussing allowed. It's actually some of the people in there are handicapped children, that, you know, a little autism. They really don't know they're there. So um, I wanted to do something totally different. And so I, I wanted, I said, okay, doing this, I want also, as sort of a sublingual thing or whatever the right word is, I wanted people to know that I was going to face my own character, Lord Humongous, at one time. So this, this 15 minutes short, it shows me facing him, then it actually shows me dressing like Lord Humongous and him dressing like Lord Humongous and two Lord Humonguses facing off. So he actually stood in for me. And a funny story about this, we talked about earlier in one of the shows about uh, sort of ribbing someone and not, you know, keeping things kayfabe. Gunner, who's about 6'10 and 365, you know, I made him wear that hood the whole time. So he's back there in these little hot dressing rooms, couldn't breathe, and finally I let him take it off one week, and everybody thought he was just a big monster, but he's just a you know 16-year-old kid with a big baby face. But he actually did that just to fill in for me on, on those spots. The amazing thing about it was he did a really good job. Um, again, he's like I was a kid, shy, laid back, and you could not get this kid nervous. I mean, you could give him this real long, laid-out ordeal, and he knew every spot and was there for everything and was really proud of him. He did a really good job. All right. Well, thank you. I'm actually going to add an addendum to that question. So, Gunner, is he trained? 
No, he wasn't. This is the thing was, is uh, he wasn't trained. He just, you know, it's a little humongous. I was, did the character so I could easily walk someone through it. So we just had him doing simple stuff. But, man, he got over like a million bucks. Of course, he had. Now, I had Scott Hall also came in and uh, filled in, did a few cameo spots for this film, this documentary as well. So Gunner and him were tag team partners a lot of times against me. So it was really, it was a lot of fun. But he did a really good job for someone. And everybody that um, we you know did these little shows with, they were begging for him to come back. But that was the last thing on his mind, man. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, is there anything you'd like to promote now? I do like to promote something. One, I, we're going to talk about my book a lot. But I do want to talk about something that I enjoy seven days a week. It's my radio station. It's 89.9 on the Memphis Dial. And it's called the Weevil, and Weevil stands for We Volunteer. There's no commercials. Uh, it's only it comes on at six in the morning. It goes off at twelve midnight. But like on Friday night last night, there's a guy named Captain Pete, and he does the Captain Pete's Blues Cruise. And he's been dead for twenty five or twenty seven years. But when he comes on, he follows a guy named Lonnie that is rockabilly, and he'll Captain Pete will do his intro music, and he'll go. Okay, hey, Lonnie, thanks for that that great rockabilly. It's about 9.14, and it's really 9.14. You're going, wow, man, this old dead guy's still right. And they also got a guy who I tune in on every Wednesday. It's, it's a Bashful Bob in the sure, enough, the sure Enough Country Hour, and that's all the best of the best. Now, this station has been the number one station in Memphis for over 45 years, but no one knows about them because they're way down the dial. The frequency's way off. Matter of fact, the only way I can get it, on my receivers, I got the rabbit ear and, and antennas. Now I can point it right to them. But it's uh, they play different genres of music every two or three hours. Like uh, this morning, Saturday morning, it was the Bluff City Barn Dance, and that's bluegrass for four hours. And then after that was the Irish pub music, which I don't listen to. But they have rap, they have reggae. And I tell you, on Sundays, the reggae, which I'm not into, but you'll hear a song once in a while and go, man, I don't know what that is, but that is good stuff. And then... Uh, couple other segments like is uh the mini moves of ben vaughn now he says he's in a relay shack somewhere hidden which we know he's not but uh but he'll play anything say from johnny cash to uh the grateful dead and just this one great song and then some of the artists you don't know especially the mini moves of ben vaughn and it just goes on and on you have to look it up and uh see what the playlist is and what you want to listen to that now we've talked a lot about my friend barry norman who has got an unbelievable knowledge for music He's looking at the playlist, and even he is amazed. But you can streamline it, from my understanding. Like Bachelor Bob, he'll talk about, I've got one of these here electric letters from somebody out in California said, hey, Bachelor Bob, really enjoy your show. And Bob, Bob will talk about, hey, if you see a turtle, get out and help him cross the road. And toads, by the way, toads make really good pets. Take, a, take an old vase and crack a hole in it, and, and they eat thousands of insects, and, and they actually come to soothing sounds. You know, it's just, he's really in the, he's got the one about, hey, if you've got a cat, leave them inside. They kill things. <laughs> you know, it's like, I've actually heard Tom Brokaw talk about leaving your cats indoors. But it's, they're really uh, simple messages like that. Like one I heard was um, really shocking. It went, it's, I can't remember this, uh, what the commercial was, but the guy says, Think about it for a second. We're talking about the, the act of giving. And this is what this station really is, is a really giving station. And he says, think about this for a second. If we gave every time we thought to give and didn't give, what could have happened? And just like that, it went, I'm, wow, man, maybe cancer could have been cured. And that's something we all say. But if we did 
give every time we thought to give and didn't give, maybe something would have gotten done. But those are the type of commercials you're going to hear. You're not going to hear anything about it. You know, a car dealership or blah blah blah. It's it's and they talk a little bit about climate change, which people want to argue with me about that. Even my wife, and so me and Barry are against. You know, we're all for this climate change is happening. My wife's saying no because she's a Trump supporter, and I've never voted by the way my whole life. So I finally got her to admit there is something wrong with the climate. She goes, "Well, where do you and Barry think all this information comes from?" So I said, "No, no, no let me find out." So I asked Barry. He goes. From NASA, we're getting, you know, we're sending out to these satellites are giving us information. We're not making this up, you know. So they just like my neighbor next door, David Fogel, was a farmer. First time in his whole career, he never finished farming. I asked him, Dave, you know about climate change? He goes, oh, that's what some of those fake folks on TV say. I said, David, those folks are NASA, and they actually work for the government to help us. And their job is to tell us the truth under their studies. <laughs> you know, it's like trying to explain someone what a scientist's job is. So, but that's what WEVL is about. It's a great vehicle for education for music. It really is. That is excellent. WEVL. Right. And I know I, when you told me about it, I found it so easy on the internet. Right. So, yeah, you can look it up. Look, and then again, it's like they got the pajama party. She's good. And one of the best uh, segments is Melody. And it's the Music City Reverly. Now, she plays a lot of modern stuff, you know, stuff like that. But she starts every one of her deals with the Willie Nelson song. So, I mean, but she, they still have themes sometimes like this past week because Elvis, this was the week Elvis passed away. So everybody's been playing a lot of Elvis. And if someone passes away that week, they'll play a lot of, you know, uh, I can't remember the one guy that passed recently. I'm not a really big fan of him, but he, they played a lot of his stuff, you know. But it's just, again, it's a, one of the best vehicles. And everybody I've turned on to it will not listen to anything else. Like the guy that does the work on my stereo, he's a little bit of a you know nerd because he works on stereo, you know, uh, computers or uh, high-tech stuff. But I turned him on to it. He goes, man, I don't listen to anything else now. The thing is, is, you might listen to one or two bad songs, but you'll hear four or five songs. You'll go, I don't know who that was, but that was the best song I'd ever heard in my life. And, and, and then I call in. I've got a really good rapport with Brett Fleming, who's on tonight, Saturday night. It's called Soul Stew. So I'll call him and say, who is this? Give me an album. Like he turned me on to Tatisha. I think that's how you say it. Tatisha Trucks Band. And uh, I, I bought the live Fox, and the live uh, from the Fox on her. And then I got another one of hers. But he turns me on to some good albums. And that's what I'm trying to do is get my album collection back up. And they're just good people. Excellent. W-E-V-L. Look it up online. That's it. All right, Sid. We're ready for our next one. Okay. You've been listening to the Vicious Circle Podcast. Your host, Sid Udi. Co-host, J. Robert Bellamy. Additional research by Pete Marsh. The Vicious Circle Podcast was produced by Two Cousin Road Trip Media, a division of JX3 Media Productions. The intro music, Omega Amigo, was by The Shaman. All rights to the podcast are held by Sid Udi.